You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish and we are joined today by a very special guest, someone who is an OG in the US MSO investment community, the king of controversy, Nick Astovich. Manish, fantastic intro as always. Excited to be back on. So the the king of controversy line people probably don't understand, but it's because as we were discussing before we started, um, you happened to share with people a little update on the fact that JP Morgan told you that you can't uh, you can't buy cannabis OTC stocks anymore. Yeah, so I got the a verbal just message from my banker just because you know we've had a long and storied relationship with all of the banks we work with, just coming from the private cannabis side here in the U.S. You know, mm-hmm. like we just went through the whole gambit initially with JP Morgan who. This is years ago now, but initially, like, thought they could custody our shares mm-hmm. way back when, you know, and they, they of course, they would want to. Um, and we went through this just long process where they quickly realized they couldn't. Um, and then since then, have just slowly moved further and further away from having any affiliation with the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I got the word on Friday just verbally that, you know, uh, they are making a change at the corporate level to no longer serve uh, the kind of the OTC uh, slash CSC U.S. cannabis stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, I thought, you know, hey, I, as a JP Morgan client, I had a pretty good viewpoint of it, put it on sure. Twitter and uh, very quickly had a bunch of people accusing me of lying or, you know, n- not believing the story, which is which is always interesting. But, uh, you know especially as someone who's been a, a U.S. cannabis supporter for a long time. It was just Since unfortunate news I wanted to share. This, this guy was a cannabis investor in the U.S. before we could spell MSO. And this is the guy you think is like trying to kill the sector? Yeah. And of course, I mean, it, it honestly, most people weren't and they did believe me right away. Just I, mean, I think it's I guess I get it. You know, there's a lot of nonsense out there on Twitter, so I, I don't blame everyone for mm-hmm. thinking people put out, you know, not just untrue information. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share. And then luckily, uh, uh, Todd, if, um, uh, uh, I forget his uh, investment Todd business, Harrison. but yep. yeah, uh, ended up posting the exact uh, memo that JP Morgan put out, which is, you know, just a confirmation of what I put out there and, and just kind of an unfortunate development to see in an industry that is already struggling quite a bit at the moment. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, look, the the you know the topic of today is we're going to be talking about you know the, a lot of the negativity that we're experiencing, and you know, uh, spoiler alert, buckle up. We think there might be some more road bumps coming over the next little while. Um, but look, there's a lot of reason for optimism as well, right? And I guess I'll start out by you know, Nick, I wanted to address kind of that story because a because I thought it was hilarious, but b because like. Like this is kind of the market we're in where people are so negative that like if you have anything bad to say, even if you're a guy who's been in the industry six or seven years, funded the original rounds of GTI and you're just trying to share perspective with people, they're ready to like jump at you because they think you're spreading this like negative news. And it's like, 
if people aren't looking for good information, like what are we doing here? Yeah. And oddly, like, you know, people always, you, you can talk trash about Twitter in general, but that was the main reason I jumped on is because there is, you know, generally good people providing good information out there. Um, so yeah, I was just trying to offer that in return. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, there's of course, you know, things we can point to and we'll discuss today that are negative on the industry, but the, you know, fundamental story that I've been investing behind for, you know, going on seven, eight years now remains true. Um, I think it's just be, you know, you gotta be cognizant of what you're investing in, what the, Mm -hmm. you know, both dynamics at the company level and at the federal level are, and just be realistic about those concerns. So I think just being nimble, being reactive. And not just falling into the same old, you know, thought process when it comes to everything mm-hmm. uh, is just going to be key in this industry going forward. And look, Nick, I mean, there's a couple of reasons I really wanted to have you on. Um, one is because we tried to do an episode pre MJ Biz, and that didn't work out very well, unfortunately, for uh, technology. But um, the other is just that, like, look, when we talk about sort of investing and the the world of investing, right? I mean, you and I do these. Um, these quarterly financial reviews, which I, I don't think I've ever told you this, but actually, aside from the executive interviews, those are actually the most listened to episodes we have. So people really appreciate you know, the deep dive and, and your perspective. And I wanted to have you on because you were the first person I saw sharing really good ground level information on the MSOs you know, like two years ago about not just, hey, the stock is going up or the stock is going down, but like GTI is opening a store here in Pennsylvania. Like this is where the assets are going. This is what's happening in this state. This is going to be a good market. And I think that that focus on good, relevant, fundamental information that dictates dictates the direction of the business, I think that is really where we should be focusing our energy as opposed to just looking at tickers all day, which will drive you crazy. Uh, yeah, I think that's perfectly said. You know, I think at, at its early stage, there was, you know, the, the ability just to look state by state to get a really good grasp on these companies. And, you know, that's, of course, harder nowadays with the the footprints they have and just the ever evolving market dynamics. But, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes down to it, most of these companies have, you know, a handful of states that kind of lead the way for them. Mm-hmm. So analyzing the the quarter by quarter conditions of those can you know just pay a lot of dividends as to what you can expect going into those quarterly results. I mean, you were one of the first people who helped me understand that like the results of the companies are not just a black box, right? And then, you know, look, the bigger the company gets, the more the harder it is to predict what's going to happen quarter over quarter, right? But um, you know, one of the one of the biggest deals I did in 2019 and kind of early on was TrueLeave and it was just because I could track what was happening in Florida week over week. So it made it really easy to predict what would happen quarter over quarter, right? And now, I mean, uh, even TrueLeave is like really has a deep five-state footprint that that drives those results. So it's like, it's much more difficult now on these larger companies to sort of predict what's going to happen, right? And people would, I guess, argue is that, uh, they would argue that it doesn't even matter. If you can predict that a company is going to outperform in Q3, for example, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is safe banking and getting uplisting. So I think first thing I'd like to do is talk about the door swinging the other way. You know, within this year, going from euphoria to now, I would categorize it as like depression in this industry. Um, pessimism and negativity rule the day. 
Let's talk about that, Nick. What do you think about the idea that, look, it doesn't matter how these companies perform in the short term. The only thing that matters is getting safe and uplisting. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a nuanced question. You know, I think there there definitely is some truth to it. And mostly just in the in the sense that a lot of the market is driven in these big waves that we've seen. We've seen it over the past two years, like pretty clearly where there are multi-month periods of mm-hmm. just crazy expansion followed by very elongated downtrends. Okay. Um, and, and within that, you know, I think it's hard for one company to really buck the trend. If, you know, if the whole market moves down 50%, mm-hmm. it's obviously understandable that, that even some of the best performing names in that time frame will, will similarly drop. I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, but to over, you know, to count it out completely, removes your, you know, your ability as an investor to dis- discern between these companies. Um, Cause ultimately, you know, sound fundamentals, proper capital allocation, er- everything we look for in a good company does uh, pay dividends in- in- on the margin, you know, that the market, the market will move together as a whole, but I think pretty clearly we see companies do better than one or another at specific times where, where they have done well or where they've you know, made a strategic acquisition that was meaningful in some way. Um, but I do think that you know, quite clearly at, at the moment, there is a big just uh, kind of federal overhang on the industry right now as everyone was expecting a lot more from the, the current administration uh, after the, the 2020 election. Yeah. So, I mean, look, let's talk about that. And and funny little tidbit, Nick, is uh, we did our Q3 financial review about a year ago, a little, little under, so like probably end of the kind of end of the year of last year. And, um, you know, the last thing you said as we were exiting the episode was, we've had a historic run. Don't be afraid to take some off the table. Right. And it's, fu- it's funny because if people had listened to that and been prudent and like trimmed some off the table, they would have felt really stupid because then the Senate flipped, right? And that was a huge tailwind. And then we had the whole GameStop Madison. And that was a huge tailwind. So they would have watched that stock they sold go up maybe 50 or more percent in only two months, right? Um, and one thing I said to people that I think you know has probably sunk in now is like, if you started investing in MSOs in 2020, like a lot of people did, you had a really blessed investing career and everything was just straight up and to the right. The businesses were great. There was huge tailwinds on capital inflows. Um, and now, you know, you're learning probably a lot of the lessons that, you know, I had to learn in 2019 when the market got smacked, right? Nick, you've probably been through a couple of spins of the wheel of that, right? And what you're learning is volatility does not only work in one direction. And when it works in the other direction, it does not feel so good, right? And that's when you have to really decide how well do you know your investments? What do you focus on? And what is your strategy moving forward? Yeah, well said. And I think that's why having a a disciplined approach on both, you know, the upswings and downswings becomes more important than ever. And, you know, even if you don't nail the top, you know, in terms of your sales and, you know, kind of like I mentioned back at that podcast, if if you're looking to trim along the way, Don't feel too bad if you don't nail it, you know, 100%. Totally. Because you're going to enter these downtrends like we're seeing today and just be happy that, you know, you took some off the table when the market as a whole was at a hot point. Um, and, and similarly, on, on the downtrends, like it's important to just have that, you know, somewhat more disciplined patience. Don't necessarily panic 
because you know this industry does come in waves. We we, we know the underlying growth. We, we we know the underlying fundamentals of these companies, mm-hmm. um, even if it takes a lot longer. Because uh, there's you know like like we discussed a lot of just federal and um, higher arching influences that can you know take hold from time to time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Having that patience in these downtrends, uh, I think, is just going to be re- really important because you know you, you got to see the the light at the end of the tunnel when, when it feels like everything is going negative. And the opposite, right? I mean, it, it took a lot of discipline in February when I was watching these tickers fly to not pour a ton more money in, and I, and I did, right? I still did buy some things that I just felt were better value at the time. And, you know, got completely killed on those too, right? But the, the thing is, what I learned from the last spin of the wheel is the ups and downs, right? So, uh, you know, seeing in 2019, the stocks get killed, and then we thought it was going to recover, then we got hit by the vaping crisis, then we got, we went down into the COVID lows. And then, you know, just, just seeing, like, what I, one of the big things I took away was, like, not trying to time the market too much in terms of going to cash, Right. Um, and another thing, I think, Nick, you were the one, I think, who told me this was one of the things you guys took away was to to be able to trade a little bit more, even though you guys are long term holders, uh, you know, to be able to trade a little bit more and take advantage of the ups and downs that you were seeing on your GTI position. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something we've definitely been more active of and, you know, have learned to appreciate as, you know, as tr- more more traditionally, we've just been long term holders of the stock and, you know, we're kind of under the notion that, you know, no matter what, we're kind of just going to hold through the ups and downs and mm-hmm. just think about the long game. Uh, but I think, you know, what, what the last couple of years has taught us is, you know, like we've said, it's it's a game of waves. And, uh, you know, we're certainly I would never advise moving entirely out of positions or anything like that. I mean, granted, mm-hmm. it depends on the size you're working with, mm-hmm. um, but kind of, you know, working around trading around just on kind of the margins and taking a little off the table or or, you know, buying some on on the dips. Like I said, even if you're not nailing them perfectly, I think o- over time you can kind of, you know, r- really get good positions and and take good profits in a more balanced way by doing so. And I think what people miss too is like, and I, I give all credit to uh, Seishu who who always says this. He said, "Look, stocks trade on narratives, right?" And I think that's very very true. Um, I think to expand that, what's interesting to me is figure out where is the narrative uh, wrong. Or what is the narrative missing, right? So the narrative sort of earlier in the year was the Senate's flipped. Um, you know, cannabis is is high on this list of things that's going to get done. We're going to see federal legalization. Um, it's going to happen like tomorrow. Like it's coming, it's coming. Um, and now the institutions are getting involved, right? So, and now it's time to underwrite stocks at 40 times 2023 EBITDA, right? And it was like, well, hang on a minute, like, I don't think it's going to happen that quickly. I don't think it's that easy. I think these are complex things. And so the narrative was getting too ahead of itself in pricing some of those things in, right? Um, A narrative now is like, look, nothing matters except for safe. Well, I don't think that's true. I think safe is the ultimate prize. Uplisting is the ultimate prize for us. But even just how we talk about it, right? Like these stocks do not trade like an ETF that everything just goes down together. I mean, an example of this is in the last few weeks, we saw GTI breakdown. And that was one that had out, kind of hung in there better than others. And now it's kind of coming down more than others. So the, the point just being, if you are really dialed in and you underwrite these stocks and you keep your finger on the pulse, there's opportunities to move between them. Um, it's maybe not as fun as when things are going up and you're getting these quick wins. 
Uh, but there's really interesting opportunities being created between the stocks. And, you know, if I'm going to guess, and we'll, we'll talk about Q3, but, you know, Q3 is probably going to be a bit of a painful earning report um, because of what we're seeing on the fundamental side. And it will probably create some really interesting opportunities to reallocate between your names, take the tax loss and pick something up that might be um, underappreciated and might have more upside kind of in the short to medium term. Yeah, no, totally agree there. And, you know, I think a key thing on the downside is a lot of the quote unquote wins that you'll have will be much less apparent than, you know, selling a stock at an all time high. A lot of times the win will be, you know, the the position you took strategically it was only down, you know, 35% when the market was down 50. Yeah, And, and that's sure. hard to like, you know, visualize, but in the same way as a, you know, as taking a good profit, but it's something that you should learn to appreciate and, and see the difference. Uh, that that even if you know <laughs> your position is down overall and that feels bad, you might have made a strategic choice and outperformed the market uh, on a, on a relative basis, and that's a key, a key aspect to look out for. That's a great point. And look, I mean, a lot of people who when they bought in 2020, like they probably liked the opportunity, they got excited about it, but ultimately, people who were just getting started probably didn't push all their money in, right? They probably did it in a measured way, and then it took off, and they said, "Oh, I wish I put more in," right? But that time when you're writing the check, when you're when you're hitting the buy button, whatever it is, um, you know, even though you know Nick and I, we spend a lot of time on this. We have years of experience. We have conviction. It doesn't mean it's not somewhat scary when you're taking that position, right? It just means that, like, you're pushing past that fear and rationalizing why you're doing it and having a thesis. You know, you hope you're right, um, and then, but ultimately, it could, you know that buy that you're making today, you might not feel the reward of that for six months or 12 months or two years. Um, but you know, when you hit that upside, that is it, it, a lot of the money is made in the buying is what I'm getting at similar to real estate. So that's a big part of it is you want to be able to buy the right things at the right times. And usually the best investment climates are when people are running the other way. And that's what it feels like today. Exactly. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think if you can understand the fundamental story and thesis behind what you're investing in, uh, then ultimately, you know, the, these kind of waves that we see in the overall market um, are, are going to play out. You know, I think, I think, you know, from the very beginning, all of our podcasts together, it's always, you know, heavily fundamentally driven. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the biggest thing today that I always think about, you know, these stocks are way down and obviously as investors that freak us out. But when I think about the the fundamental story of, of these MSOs, you know, that, that we tend to highlight, uh, it remains more true than ever. You know, the majority of them raise money near all times highs. Their, mm -hmm. their balance sheets are very sound. There may be hiccups, you know, and we'll get to that today in terms of quarter over quarter growth, but it's undeniable the the pace at which the at which the U.S. market in general is accelerating, mm -hmm. and it's undeniable the the, the future um, accelerators that we see, whether it be you know New, New Jersey turning on, New York turning on, a yep. long list of of state by state markets. Yeah, that's undeniable. It might take longer than we thought. It might not go in the smoothest way mm -hmm. on on the uh, you know on the legislation side, but that fundamental story of you know outsized returns and good market share from kind of these leading operators, I, I think it remains more true than ever. Okay. Let's talk about that. So some um, of the negativity and so look, we have, you know, sort of the noise, the traders, the money kind of flowing out because nothing's happening, 
But there's also, look, there's also very legitimate concerns on the fundamentals of the business, right? So two states that we've highlighted and we've dug into a lot, you know, Florida is the obvious one. We saw a lot of price competition there in Q3. And I mean, that's just going to have an effect on everybody's P&L for Q3, right? Um, obviously, TrueLeave is the one to watch the closest. But also, you know, Harvest, they blew out their inventory as they finished out the quarter and, and finished the merger. So it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Um, but PA, I mean, and Nick, you, you brought this to my attention. PA, we've been seeing more sales um, from Air and GTI over the last couple of weeks, and that's Q4. So look, part of the problem, I think, Nick, is that this MSO game is being figured out. Um, like anything in business, right? If something's great, people want to come in and copy it. And now there's not just you know three or four good operators with capital. There's maybe eight or 10 or 12. And so that capital flowing in has allowed a lot of operators to also build out their cultivation and catch up. And if the patient count or the you know uh, rec count is not growing fast enough or as fast as it was before, it's just hard to achieve the same level of growth, maybe impossible to achieve the same level of growth. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want it to sound too pessimistic. I think there, there is a lot of room, you know, the margins that these companies were operating at were just, you know, somewhat ridiculous from time to time, mm-hmm. mostly just due to those supply demand imbalances. So I think, you know, even with more competition, more sales, like we're seeing, there's Obviously, still a lot of room for these companies to make money, but yeah, like you said, I, I think it's got to be realistic about you know New Cannabis Ventures. Alan Brockstein's website posted a, a nice update today. You know, I think it carried through uh, uh, BDSA data through September, and you know mm-hmm. those states that we mentioned, Pennsylvania, ended up up just one percent from Q2 in Q3, and mm-hmm. then Florida, I believe, was you know roughly flat or. Um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, essentially flat relative to Q2. So the fact mm-hmm. that overall sales were flat and we saw, you know, a lot of the due diligence that we do just, you know, following the the message boards and all that. Um, mm-hmm. And you see those sales like it's it's undeniable that there's more price competition going on. So, yeah, definitely something we got to be aware of in, in Q3 and for the foreseeable future, because like you said, these, you know, there's certain states out there that got identified as, you know, really strong, positive states. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, you had companies pouring money into them and bringing, in a lot of cases, bringing in, you know, really large cultivation expansions. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times I think you know, this is mostly in uh, Pennsylvania to some extent, but also Illinois and Ohio and a few other states is the, you know, they're reaching the the limits or at, le- at least getting up there on, on the total number of dispensaries. They're reaching right. the license limits in the states mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, organic growth that you can just see from new stores opening up in the state is somewhat limited as well. So that just means more competition in between stores. So I think all of that is kind of working together, you know, slower patient count growth than a lot of the medical states, mm-hmm. lots of new capital flowing into the into these markets. It's going to lead to more competition and some price compression. And that's one thing that people miss. And this is something that Abner said, you know, back in 19, he's like, look, like, yes, it sucks as an investor when the bottom falls out. By the way, it doesn't really. We'll get into that today. Right. Um, But it's tougher as an operator when the access to capital dries up. But then longer term, it's amazing for margins because cultivation expansion in this industry takes 18 months, maybe 24 months. Right. Because you actually have to build a building and then you have to you know, put the plants in and you have to grow it. So, um, and then there's supply chain delays now. So, you know, the 
kind of what we're seeing today is in part because of the success of 2020, right? And and the inflow of capital. So now that being said, there's a lot more debt and real estate capital available, um, whereas, you know, the equity capital is harder to come by. But don't discount the fact that for smaller operators, it's so much harder to raise capital. And because of that, like it actually gives these big companies a big advantage, right? There's a lot of advantages to scale um, and having a public currency right now, even if your public currency is very cheap. I think this is actually building the asset base of these companies longer term. But to get there, I mean, yeah, we have to go through some choppiness, right? So I think, Nick, to the points that we're talking about here, there, I don't think there really is a magic formula against margin compression in the short term, right? Eventually, PA will flip rec. That could actually happen sooner than we think. Like it could happen even next legislative session in the spring, um, which would be an incredible tailwind for the industry for PA to flip. Yeah, yeah, I think that's something that's probably a, another reason behind the slight pessimism is is you know that we do have. Uh, just currently, given the delays in like the New Jersey market, there, there's been a slight period where, uh, you know, there hasn't been the one new market that kind of drives that that strong growth for these totally. operators. Um, and that was kind of a key factor. What you know, whether 2020 largely driven by Illinois, Florida, Pennsylvania, like we always talk about. Um, and then you know we do have those future catalysts coming, but we're kind of in an interim period. Like New Jersey's moving a little bit slower than we thought. Um, mm-hmm. Illinois, you know, which we expected to have a lot more growth is just facing endless lawsuits in terms of issuing new retail licenses that, that would dramatically grow the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like we outlined, you know, certain medical states are, you know, getting pretty big and, you know, just there, there's going to be some slowdown in, in that patient growth as they, you know, reach five or 6% uh, market penetration in those states. I mean, those um, are massive numbers, right? I mean, you have, you have 600,000 patients now in PA, I mean, almost like 650 in Florida, like, these are big numbers, right? So naturally, you're, you know, you're, you're, even if you grow at the same rate, the pace of growth has slowed, right? And so that's, that's a challenge, right? But it's, it's not the end of the world. Like it's, and we're going to be able to test Abby theory now um, about in a down market, you know, bad news is amplified and good news is muted, right? Because these financials will, I think, across the board with one or two exceptions, they'll, they'll be kind of quote unquote misses, right? After having such great growth. Um, so we'll see how the market will react. And look, I'm here for it. I mean, if the market wants to sell off on these stocks because they grow a little bit last because New Jersey got deferred, um, but I, I feel really good about the business, uh, you can better believe I'll be in there making moves. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I'm definitely expecting a, a soft quarter overall because it, 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 the weakened growth even extended to a lot of the more mature markets that we traditionally see. So even the, you know, the Oregon's, the Washington's, the California's, the Colorado's were essentially right. all down from Q2. Um, and I'm sure there's some, you know, seasonality that, that factors in here with, with all these markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, kind of no matter where you had exposure to, unless I think the, the big outliers were, were mainly uh, Michigan is still growing at a, a pretty strong clip, uh, just opening up a ton of stores. And then, mm-hmm. and then Massachusetts actually had a really strong quarter. Um, but, but outside of that, and there's some new markets like, you know, I bet Virginia and Missouri did, did some good growth over Q2, but for sure, there's obviously not a ton of exposure there in general to all these names. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, definitely looking at a state by state basis is pointing towards a, a much softer, uh, Q2 or sorry, Q3, 
Um, so it'll really come down to, you know, who made a, a strategic acquisition and, you know, is going to have kind of just growth that way or who, you know, turned on assets and likely took market share from others, even though the the, the market didn't grow uh, too much overall. Yeah, for sure. So last last point on this and then we'll kind of move on. But I think what I like right now, I guess this blends into the next point, is that this to me is a phenomenal investment climate to be putting your dollars to work. So, you know, when I hear about things like custodying issues from JP Morgan, right, I have some uh, OTC shares right now from a great company that Canaccord won't take of all places, right, that I'm having trouble getting into my account. Um, when I see those kind of structural issues and and put that on top of the fact that now everyone thinks that, you know, Schumer is the worst person in the world and nothing's ever going to happen, right? When I think there's a good chance we get something, you know, kind of first half of next year before the midterms, right? Um, and then and then when you when you sort of factor in the 2022 uh, ballot measures or, you know, potential for legalization in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Maryland, Missouri, Arkansas, I mean, those first three states alone, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Maryland, those are huge MSO states. Right. So the fact that nobody is really pricing that in right now and they're all going the other way, that gets me excited because the risks are always there. It just depends if people are pricing them in or not. And right now, there's very little being priced in. And that's the market that I want to be outspending dollars in. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I think, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned how key patience will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even all of the, you know, trends that we identified in Q3 here, um, or kind of these short-term trends in general that might be on the negative side. I think if you, you know, have patience, you can see the uh, the light at the end of the tunnel for all of these situations. You know, we talked about some slower market growth. Think about where we'll be a year, a year, a half an hour if uh, New Jersey, New York, and, and Connecticut and Virginia adult use turns on. And if we get some wins in that those 2022 elections you mentioned, like that, that saves off a lot of it. And like you said, on the federal side, it seems like we're in just, you know, the dumps overall because it mm-hmm. hasn't happened as quick as we thought. But we've seen where this industry is moving overall. We've seen mm-hmm. how quickly, you know, especially as a long term investor, about thinking about where we were even three, four years ago compared to today. Mm-hmm. There's been tremendous progress and it's not going to be a perfect straight line up and to the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the trend is clearly continuing it. The people the people love cannabis and, and that's not going to change. Uh, it's just going to take some time on on the actual legislation side. And, you know, I don't complete like Schumer's obviously is always going to get a ton of a ton of shit for all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't necessarily like, you know, disagree with this point. Like you have to remember, he's not he's not like uh, supporting the industry to make our stocks go up. That's not his goal. Um, so the idea that, you know, let me try to get my large, expansive bill passed. Like, you you know, you might disagree with that. And, and I totally understand that. But you got to see where he's coming from. Like, I need to go all the way as far as I can. And, you know, I think realistically, the, they're going to see that, hey, maybe this isn't attainable, but maybe we, we can step it back slightly and do a, a safe plus type of bill. And then it's still viewed as, you know, as a win. They got as much as they realistically could. But and it took you know an extra year. So like like I said, not not perfect for investors, but you know just seeing it from their perspective, like I, I don't think we should just assume that nothing is going to happen on the on the legislative side in in the next year or two. No, I'm I'm actually quite uh, bullish on that. I mean, look, you never know, but um, you know if you go back to that original press conference they did, that one where Booker you know says I'm going to lay down in front of everybody or whatever, right? 
um, where everybody freaked out. At the very end of that press conference, if you go back and watch that, they ask Senator Schumer, so does this mean you're not doing safe anymore? And he goes, let's see how it goes. We want to get something done. Right. And, and he's the guy in charge. Right. And what and last thing on this, because I hate talking about the federal stuff, but like it's we are so lucky that we actually are in a position where the Senate majority leader is being a champion of a bill. He's he has to go out and try. Let him try first. Right. And then he's going to he's going to say, oh, I tried and they wouldn't let me do it. So we're doing this instead. And we'll you know pass some clemency or something and do the right thing, by the way, which is help people who've been locked up for this drug. Um, but. On top of that, right? I mean, you know how lucky we are that that Biden is so opposed to cannabis and Schumer and Co are like too bad we're doing it anyway. Like, if this was Barack Obama in office and he had a huge anti-cannabis stance, they would never try to pu- push this through on him, right? They're completely thumbing their nose at him and going in the face of what he wants because they're like too bad. We know this is a winning issue, so like. I think people are overlooking the fact that that's a very fortunate dynamic that we have right now that is quite unique. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I mean, you just got to realize that politics everywhere takes time. I mean, we see this, you know, other than really Canada and, and a few other places, you know, cannabis legislation, it just takes time. You know, Canada took a long time too. I, all credit to Alan Broxine for pointing this out multiple times. Like, can you know, Justin Trudeau had all the he had full control of all the branches of government and you know he, he won in 15 or 16 and he didn't get a pass till late 18 it didn't actually happen till late 18 so these things take time but if we, they don't get it done before the midterms I agree we got a problem <laughs> we got a really big problem that's true that's true that, at that point we might I mean granted I don't think necessarily I mean it depends on you know who wins what house and exactly what the split is like. Right. Fair. Um, there's clearly been an interest from the, you know, Republicans in the house to get safe passed. That was a pretty bipartisan bill. Um, and I think, I think there has been signs of support in the Senate, but yeah, obviously you're not getting uh, an overwhelming bill like, like Schumer wants. And it just raises the possibility that, especially with everything in politics today, that they're just going to lock horns and do nothing. Um, yeah. Yep, totally so so that, that is a realistic concern. Um that you know, if the house, if the legislation gets divided, you know, in that twenty twenty two election, that we we really do need to get something done before then. It reminds me of uh, somebody posted on on Twitter. It was like uh, somebody's like, "This is the greatest generational opportunity ever," and someone's like, "Yeah, what generation? Our great grandkids." <laughs> That's spot on. Yeah, so I, I thought that that was a fun one. Okay, so so look, moving on, so. The best climate for investing is when people are running the other way. So one thing I wrote down is that retail money feels stupid and institutional money looks stupid right now. So when I was at MJ Biz, you know, meeting with these sort of like quasi institutional guys and and like, you know, the sentiment was so negative. Like these I was like, man, are you guys okay? And they're like they're like this industry sucks right now. And I'm like, guys, like, you know, you're supposed to be the smart money in the room like chill out. This is a great opportunity. Like, why are you so depressed? And they're like, I'm like, shouldn't we be out like buying more? And they're like, Manish, like we have investors. We have people we have to answer to who are looking at their portfolios, who we sold on this generational opportunity who are down 50%. And if we do, this doesn't turn around soon, these people might force us to liquidate and like, they'll never work with us again. And I was like, 
damn, yeah, that does suck. <laughs> like, like, yeah, okay, I kind of understand what you're saying now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, like when you're, you know, when you have to work on the institutional side and you're working with someone else's money, there's always like, you know, a time frame of some sort involved. Like, especially, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of these early P funds started uh, kind of saw the success that people had, you know, whether it be like 2015 to 2018 timeframe mm-hmm. there, you know, there's just tremendous success to, to be had if you got mm-hmm. any sort of public exit. Um, and, and then, you know, a lot of them went out and raised fund twos and fund threes and, you know, started implementing whether it was in you know 2019 or, if, mm-hmm. you know, continue, or saw the, and then a similar pattern happened here. Everyone saw the, you know, just the fervor, <laughs> Uh, following the 2020 election and, mm-hmm. you know, probably tried to jump in real quick. And uh, I mean, that does tell a story about, you know, if, if you're a real t- retail investor and you think like, oh, my God, and my positions are way down, just know that the quote unquote smart money did the did the same thing in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it the more I think about it, it was like just such a phenomenal vouch for the power, the the benefit of being able to invest your own money. And not having investors, you know, over your shoulder looking at you. I mean, you know, Nick, for for people like you and I, and for the retail investors at home listening, it's like the the uh, the phrase I keep coming back to is that we are spoiled for choice. And the metaphor that I have is it's like being at like an amazing buffet, and all the food looks so good, and your biggest problem is that you only have one plate, and the you know the the Biggest, you know, the problem for most people is that we already filled up our plates in February or March, right? Or maybe there's a little bit of room left on the plate. Um, and in an ideal world, you just get another plate. But otherwise, you need to start choosing pretty carefully and thinking pretty hard about, you know, what your next move is. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that that's a perfect metaphor for it. Just because, you know, I think a lot of people, and you know, when I talked about patients earlier, especially on on the way down and, and timing your entries back in. Uh, if you kind of, you know, overestimated how, how long these downtrends can happen and, you know, you utilize or put put to use almost all of your available cash, like clearly you're feeling pretty rough right now when, when you continue totally. to see it to drop and you can't uh, continue to, you know, cost average in. And you're, the problem is even if you have more money, like most people earn a paycheck, right, and have money coming in, but they, they just can't stomach putting more in, right? Because it's like, look, I have so much of this. If it turns around, I'm going to be great, but I can't afford or I can't, I can't stomach putting any more in, right? And again, that's a learning lesson, right? Now we learn about being overextended. Now we learn why we don't buy things on margin, right? These are all learning lessons. And if you weren't around for the 2019 spin of the wheel, this is your learning lesson. Now, that being said, Nick, I, you know, I grew up in the commercial real estate world as values were going through the roof, interest rates were going down. And you hear these stories about the 1990s after the SNL crisis, uh, the saving and loans crisis that happened. And, and real estate was so underwater, it was being sold by banks who had basically foreclosed on the properties. And they were giving away these properties. Like they were like, you know, I think somebody told me a story. You used to be able to buy industrial assets at uh, land value minus demolition cost because people would buy the building. They would demo the building till the property taxes would come down and they would sit on the land. <laughs> and, you know, like in today's world, especially that's such a, that's so far off. Right. But that kind of reminds me of cannabis where we are today and that it's like, yeah, the stuff is looking cheap, 
but what they don't tell you when you hear about those stories is the stomach that it takes the investors to make the leap and make a big bet um, because uh, you know it's it's not all roses when you're buying. You're hearing all this negative chatter. Uh, the only difference is the fundamentals are so strong and they look so good with baked in growth from like you know just med states flipping to wreck that no matter what you own, even if you own stuff that's not that great, the good news is it's all good. I think you can be approximately right in this industry right now. I think you could hold even just like MSOS. And I think you'll do great over time if you have some patience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, totally agree. And, you know, I think there's a lot of limiting factors today and we've discussed a lot of them, but yeah, the fundamentals of it, the, you know, just the price to earnings ratio that, that we're, that we're trading at relative to other growth industries uh, it's unbelievable the opportunity we're seeing in front of us. And, you know, like, like you said, there, there's probably companies that will do marginally better in, in those situations. Um, and, and that's key to discern as an investor. But yeah, on the whole, like you said, you could go super broad and do just do an ETF, I think, at these prices. And mm-hmm. as long as it's like you said, have that stomach to to wait out a year, two years, wh- whatever it takes, I think you're going to get very solid returns. Um, over any sort of mid to long term uh, timeline and, and just having that patience is key. I mean, the risk adjusted return to me is off the charts because like, sure, Nick, you got into GTI at an amazing price because you did privately in 14 and 15 and 16. But they were like, it was like a dream back then, right? It was like an idea of some of these were pre-licensed, right? The risk you were taking compared to today when you can see these being cash flow generative businesses, you can see the momentum shifting in terms of political stuff. I mean, the the re- the risk reward, in my opinion, has never been better in this industry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've seen some, you know, it's always like just kind of off uh, comments that I see on like Twitter, but just, you know, I think one today was related to where, you know, Cresco was trading, you know, similar to where it was in like 2018 or something like that. And they compared like at the time Cresco had like, you know, six stores <laughs> was doing like 20 million in revenue. Uh, and it's really trading at the same price today where, you know, it's, it's nearly a, a billion dollar run rate business uh, and wow. on the way there. And it's just, it's crazy to see. And like you said, I mean, that's just, it's a huge de-risk of your investment. Cause back then, you know, these, there were times where the market would run, but it, it was still building as to whether the, these could be, you know, truly profitable scaled businesses, mm-hmm. but, but we've seen that. And, and even, even if there are, there, you know, might be some softness in, in Q3 or like the short term from time to time, it might be a little bit choppy, but you know, the, the scale of the business, the the, the potential for cash flow and, and profitability has never been higher relative to the valuation that you're getting in at. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about actual strategy, right? And we're going to answer some questions here as well. But basically, it comes down to what do you actually do with all this information, right? So, you know, going back to this metaphor of your plate is full, but you look around and you're like, wow, there's other things that look even better than what I'm holding on to. Um, you know, the, the metaphor kind of falls apart because it's not just about how good the item is, but it's about what you pay for it, right? Or what price it's available at. Um, but, you know, what some people will have to do is sort of reallocate, right? Have to take something off the table in order to bring something new on. And Nick, you're the perfect person to ask about this because, you know, in your family office, GTI has become such a huge portion of your net worth that a lot of times you guys will have to sell some GTI to do a new deal. So I'd love to ask you, how do you guys think about that? And what 
helps you decide to sell GTI to buy something else? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, something like you said, we're, we're always considering just, you know, in the sake of diversification and a little, little peace of mind not to have such a large portion under a single name, even though, mm-hmm. you know, I continue to believe in GTI more, more than anyone else out there. So like, it's been a, you know, a great horse to, to tie ourselves to, but you, you hear that Ben, it's all good. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, but like you said, we're, we're, we're obviously like, you know, cognizant of, you know, like, like we discussed earlier, looking at the fundamentals and uh, you know, I mainly look at always, you know, current year and uh, usually 20 for, in this case, 2022, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, price to sales ratios and then price to EBITDA ratios. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, you know, one of the easiest things you can do just from a fundamental aspect to see where you're getting at. Um, and, you know, I think in a lot of cases, and this is particularly true in the, in the past couple of months where GTI is held up better than most, mm-hmm. um, it was quite obvious that, you know, and I agree, GTI does deserve that premium in a lot of ways. They've, you know, sure. been around longer. They've, you know, had just, I think they're going like number nine beat on consensus estimates. Like there's a lot mm-hmm. of reasons that people have given that premium, mm-hmm. uh, to the company, but, you know, I think footprint. Yeah, footprint. I think I think the whole story is there. You know, yes, uh, everything you want you want to see. Um, but a lot of times you have to, you know, I have to just be realistic with myself and say, hey, does that deserve a you know a fifty to a hundred percent premium over Verano or, or you know a similar name? In a lot of cases, it was like you know Truly or or Air, um, who you know similarly have maybe they're not quite out as proven. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they have, you know, the gross margins, the EBITDA margins, the, the sound balance sheet, everything, you know, that kind of puts them up into that same premium category that I could be like, Hey, if it was a 10 to 15% premium, I get it. If mm-hmm. it's, you know, a two times premium, uh, I'm going to be very willing to, you know, trim a little, um, and, and maybe reallocate into a new name. So that's something we did a lot over the past, uh, couple months and, uh, especially during the. Uh, the run up back in February, March, even if mm-hmm. we didn't necessarily move into a, a name directly. And, you know, I do think Ben, he, uh, he, he does a lot of the just kind of forced selling on, on his end of these uh, insider share lots that they, they sell to like institutions in, in mm-hmm. big quantities. Um, they, they had, you know, they had one at the time, I think it sold at $30 USD. And mm-hmm. at the time, like it was, you know, near the the height of everything. And I was like, you know, this is a good price. It's not fantastic. Um, but I'm certainly happy to, to take it, um, mm-hmm. and seeing where the market has gone that, that, you know, that's pr- proven to be a, a big blessing just cause, you know, like I said earlier, you're not going to perfectly time every single exit possible to, to maximize profitability. But Ben comes pretty close though, doesn't he? Dude, he does. I mean, both, <laughs> both of that and especially with the, the capital raises. I mean, if they, Ben Kovler ever shows up to sell you GTI stock, run in the other direction. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, you got to give him credit. Like, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's just, yeah, no, I he, he, he top ticks it perfectly though. Yeah. The last one, yeah, it was at 35 or 36. I mean, and they peaked at 38, like you can't do much better than that. And, you know, obviously as a shareholder, that's other than the people who invested, that's what you want to see just to minimize dilution. And those people will do fine longer term. Right. I mean, and, and I give him grief over the fact that they give warrants on the debt um, that they did in the last, you know, two raises, but at the same time, like he wants to be good to those debt investors who at some point will hopefully flip to equity investors. Right. And by giving them a nice warrant, he probably solidified the fact that they will flip to equity. Right. So, um, you know, you you said something in there that's really interesting and and all the companies you mentioned are 
solid, solid companies. But, you know, it's not just about, hey, we want to diversify and own another company. It's about what is the delta between the two, right? And, you know, I think the great measuring stick that we've been using is Verano. And it's just a clear instance of a dislocation in terms of valuation versus results and fundamentals. Like when you have Verano trading at between six and seven times next year's EBITDA, and that's me using a conservative 500 million of EBITDA, which, you know, is probably going to be light. Um, that's a great measuring stick, right? And Nick, one of the things we talked about earlier is like, it's hard to do private deals right now because the privecos come to you and they're like, hey, we've lowered our valuation to only eight times next year's EBITDA. And you're like, look, I can buy Verano at six. And that's a much larger company with scaled operations in multiple key states. That's going to be a leading wholesaler in New Jersey and has phenomenal access to capital. Why should I buy you know, your private deal with illiquidity at eight times EBITDA? And there's never really a good answer for that. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I feel for, the, for them in this market because, yeah, it's, it's become tr- you know, just extremely hard to, to raise capital in it without you know, just admitting that you, you got to lower your valuation and in, the, in that case, just dilute the company a lot more than you know they, they would ideally want to, um, and that's why I think you know when we're comparing companies, and you know when I mentioned per, perhaps you know trimming some GTI to move into something else, it's definitely key to you know to be comfortable with the the underlying company itself to to know that it's at least on par with, with the you know whatever company you happen to be exiting. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you just look at the the sales the, the um, EBITDA ratios, that, that's definitely one factor, but I would add in, make sure you look at the balance sheet. Because um, if, if you have a company that, yeah, perhaps it's trading weak, but if they have no cash on the balance sheet and you know mm-hmm. that they're going to have to do an equity raise with, with where stocks are at today, that has to be an added factor. So when I moved into like, I mean, Veron being a good example, just raised a ton of debt super cheaply, mm-hmm. like, like we've talked about before, have very, I think, I think even today, still have all of their real estate unencumbered, like yep. no, no sale and lease, no sale lease back. Yep. That, that just puts them at least, you know, they don't have that history that, that GTI has. And, you know, I think there's other comparisons that you can make. Um, but fundamentally, like I can, you know, I know this company is going to be around. They're going to be well capitalized to continue the, the growth model. Um, and then that ratio, you know, that we, we discussed on the, on the EBITDA side, I think it'll equalize given all those underlying factors. Yeah, I mean, look, sometimes it's rare that you get an opportunity so obvious, right? I mean, if you when you look at these guys, you just go, look, if Verano's just as good, like not even better, but if they're just as good as all of the other big five operators, then this stock is way too cheap, right? And you can look, you can look at Trulieve and say Trulieve is quite cheap too, but not as cheap as Verano one. And and I grant you, by the way, Trulieve is really interesting here, but you know that's why it's going to be interesting to look at the Q3 and see how the Florida numbers played out. Uh, By the way, that might have been the bottoming for Florida because, you know, one thing people don't talk about is seasonality and the seasonality for Arizona and Florida should start going in the other direction now. And patient count has already picked up, volumes have picked up, and the discounting has actually come down now in Q4. So that's really positive. You know, Curaleaf is switching up their discounting. Trulieve has come off some of the discounting entirely. Um, So, you know, these things are fluid. They change a lot. Um, and, and Nick, like, actually, to your point, I would just say that one thing I've noticed is some people like to, they do the work, 
but they don't really read the income statements. They don't really do fully diluted share count analysis. If that's the case, you might want to be careful playing around too much with your portfolio because I'll give you an example. We had a question um, from from a listener. Uh, his name is Zach. And, and Zach asked about, hey, I like to buy you know, a, a smaller stocks. Like I'd rather buy Lowell Farms because it's like a dollar stock versus a Send, which is like a seven or eight dollar stock because I can buy more of it. And hopefully Ascend will just buy Lowell. And, you know, Zach, I love you, but like that is just the wrong way to be thinking about these things totally, right? So like for people who aren't underwriting fully diluted market caps and getting into states, like getting really nitty gritty, you have to be careful because there's just so much upside to be had in the big players. You got to be careful playing on the edges if you're not doing that level of work. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. And and just realize there's there's not a shortcut uh, to do it. Like unless, I mean, totally. there's, a, there's a handful of websites and, you know, I, Alan, obviously with 420 Investor does, does a good one. And, you know, there, there's others out there, mm-hmm. uh, but never trust a Yahoo Finance or Google Finance. For a, <laughs> it's amazing. It still happens today. Like I constantly see it, you know, just people... Even, even honestly, there, I've seen it on occasion from analysts, like in analyst reports where they have yeah. a, a market cap listed. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, this yeah. is your job. And you're, you know, on a very large margin off on the flu- fully diluted share count. Um, it happens all the time. And it is amazing. It really amazes me. Yeah. So just realize you have to, you know, ideally do the work yourselves. Go find, you have to Agreed. dig into the actual, go to, go to Cedar, go to the SEC documents, whatever, whatever you need. You have to actually go into the documents. And then as well as that, look into, because that's only going to be quarterly, uh, look into any announced deals that they have to know if any dilution is coming as well. Yes, that is very important. Okay, let's go on to some questions here, which I think will round out the episode nicely. So um, CJ sent in a question and he said, I had a couple of parts of this that I wanted to read out because I think people will will like this. He said, I'm definitely over allocated to cannabis, which I'm trying to rectify, but I don't want to divest right before a rally. And I know no one has a crystal ball. And I think I think CJ beautifully encapsulated basically everyone's situation right now. Right? Like we're over allocated. You know, I want to be in a better position, but also I don't want to sell right before a rally. I'm with you, brother. Um, he says, I know you don't give investing advice and only your opinion. Thank you. Great disclaimer. Very true. Um, and he has, he has a several part question, but, uh, the main question is within the, within the sector, how do you approach allocating between value stocks that you'll just buy and hold, um, versus like larger MSOs that you like? So, so basically how do you pick and choose, you know, adding to big MSOs versus maybe some of the smaller companies that you think are good value. And he listed that he has a bunch of names, including like Lowell Farms, Next Green Wave, uh, Parent Co., Merrimed, and more. Um, but he also likes Verano. And I guess that's the first question, right? Nick, how do we think about buying some of these smaller companies versus buying some of the bigger companies? Yeah, yeah, definitely a good question. And, you know, it's definitely a, a tough one, Uh I would say, you know, it, you can find success there. You know, there there are options. You know, I think someone posted the kind of year to date results for a lot of the U.S. names. Mm-hmm. Um, and oddly, like Merrimed and uh, Schwazy, the, the Colorado Schwaz? operator, Schwaz, yeah. were, were, I think, the top two in terms of year to date performance. So and those mm-hmm. are both, you know, smaller cap names that 
uh, probably not everyone is, is aware of. Um, and they both outperformed for, you know, th- their own reasons. Yes. Um, so and that's I, key. That's key, right? They each have their own kind of outlier reasons why they outperformed. Yeah. Yeah. Schwaz was definitely beaten down significantly while, while everyone else was going up and it's yep. been a, you know, a, a hodgepodge of assets that they were putting together. But I think that's yep. actually a, a strong management team that is starting to turn the corner okay. and really put that together. And then, you know, Merrimed has just been kind of an unknown, but actually fairly profitable name. So I think you can have success there. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I mentioned this earlier, the the key thing to realize when you are looking at these smaller names, it becomes, I would say, number one, knowing that state by state footprint, because in a lot of cases, it's, you know, like he mentioned Lowell or Graham, like you're just looking at Cali. Totally. Um, so it does make it even more important that you're really digging into that state's dynamics, like especially on the California names, like. Uh, you know, looking at Q3 was actually down quite a bit from Q2 in terms of overall sales. And on top of that, we know that there's been huge price compression in, yes. in the market as a lot of, as a lot of kind of big names brought on huge capacity. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, you layer that on the fact that uh, retail growth remains, uh, it's growing, but it's, it's very slow in yes. California, just because on the, on the municipal and kind of the local level, it remains really difficult. There's a lot of lawsuits. There's a lot of just hold up from, uh, actual retail getting open. So, you know, with those smaller names, knowing the specific market dynamics is more important than ever. And then number two, like I mentioned earlier, uh, understanding their their financials and, and their balance sheet is is more key than ever. Because, you know, when you have a, a lot of these smaller companies, they have, you know, sometimes 10 to $20 million on the balance sheet. And, you know, on occasion, they're they're burning several million dollars a quarter. So the, the chances yes. that they need to raise and then, you know, raise because because like you mentioned, debt isn't available in the same way to a lot of these smaller companies. Mm-hmm. There's that increased chance that they have to you know return to the equity markets when prices are near low. And that really sets them back in terms of their future growth. So they may look oh, cheap from a yeah, it kills. So it may look cheap from a, you know, a multiple perspective relative to the big guys. But if they have you know, an equity raise coming or if, you know, if the market they're in is really a challenge, um, it's hard to envision how they out they can outperform some of the big names that may be more expensive, but you mm-hmm. at least know, hey, they have a sound balance sheet, cost of capital on the debt side continues to lower, uh, the markets they're in are still growing overall. So I think there's a big difference, you know, that you can't just look at always oh, just a, a price or an EBITDA multiple. Yeah, I think the other thing too, Nick, is is you know a lot of people look at sort of again just that that psychological thing. They look at the share price, and if the share price is a dollar. Oh, this is maybe more of a value pick. Like if this is a cheaper company than a company that trades at eight dollars, but it just ain't so, right? I mean, we've seen that. How many times has Aurora done a reverse share split on their shares just to get the you know to get the share price above the Nasdaq required three or four bucks or whatever, right? I mean. If you're not underwriting fully diluted market caps, um, you're not investing. You're trading or you're speculating, and that's fine. Like that can is a very legitimate way to make money. But uh, you can also get really, really burned, especially in this industry, if that's what you're doing. So, um, you know, the idea, and he go, kind of goes on to say that, hey, like I have, I'm sitting on a bunch of gains, like a lot of people this year that I, I already took. And I want to offset them with some losses. I mean, it is a phenomenal time. And I've done this, by the way, is to clear out some of your lower conviction names um, or names that you sort of don't see progressing in the short term to consolidate them into higher conviction names. Right. And I think think 
that the bigger names will sort of get love first in this kind of wave. And then, and then the next wave will be the smaller names. Um, but the flip side of that is like, I sold a name um, literally like a week ago that has doubled <laughs> in a week like, since I sold it. Like literally the day after I sold it, it went up 50%. <laughs> so uh, that's just the reality you have to live with sometimes. Right. So uh, that's life guys in the big city. You know, you, you can't, you can't cry over that stuff. Um, I would say also like if you have a very wide portfolio, it can be a really nice time to consolidate into uh, a couple names because a lot of times when it's the market's hot, we go out wide and we dabble in a bunch of things and um, uh, you know, consolidating I think often makes sense if you have high conviction. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's perfectly said. Okay. Second part of the question, he said, look, you have these like, you know, let's call it mid tier companies um, like a Columbia care or an ascend. Um, we can maybe put air in there as well. And it's like, you know, do I need to own those today or can I kind of wait because, you know, using my analogy from before, they'll they'll catch a, a wave, maybe a step after the larger cap names, maybe, right? We don't know. Um, so I'll, I'll give you my take on this, which is that like, I think it just depends, right? Like, I think those companies are big enough to have great access to capital. So they're big enough to play in that sort of top tier, but they're not, they're not in that top tier. Right. So, but they're still in the upper echelon of names. And if you look at like air ascend Columbia care, all these companies have proven really good access to capital, which, which is really key. So, um, you know, and these companies are also small enough now at between 1.2 and 1.5 billion, that one state can actually have an out, uh, size effect for these companies. So I think New Jersey is actually going to be huge for all three of these companies, which is really interesting. And a little tidbit I can give you is I bought a bunch of Columbia Care today, and that's kind of my dark horse pick because it's a big footprint, it's complicated, it's messy, um, it's underperformed, but they just closed G-Leaf at the beginning of Q3. This is going to be their first quarter of full G-Leaf integration. They should go from like 100 million of rev to like 130 plus million of rev this quarter. So I think they'll actually be one of the only companies that has a standout 30% growth quarter. Um, now, will anybody care? I don't know, right? I mean, it, it's a tough take, but uh, that's just like a, a little bit of a, perspective on, hey, I actually think these guys will outperform while everybody else is underperforming financially, at least in this quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think it is a good question because, you know, I think I'll, I'll even admit that one of the learning lessons I took away from, you know, kind of this downtrend is that it does take time sometimes for these companies to, you know, integrate assets and, totally. and you know, uh, so I do understand his perspective that like, hey, should we wait until they hit their ramps? Like, and obviously like timing is is key in that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was definitely a little bit early, like on my on my entry into Columbia Care. You know, I thought they were, especially during the ride up, they they were still cheap compared. They didn't run up as high as you know the the GTIs and yes. the, the Cure Leaves of the world. Um, so even at that time, I was like, hey, you know, it kind of looks cheap, um, but they it have value. Great, yeah, that, had, that was value. Yeah, but they have this great growth story. And then, you know, during that time, I think they've, you know, they came down very quickly, even though they were cheap, they came down mm-hmm. even faster than, than a lot of the big names held up. And I think a part of that was, uh, even though we knew they had this tremendous growth story ahead, it was more of a slow roll um, that slowly has begun accelerating. And, and I, like you said, with especially with G-Leaf and the, 
the margins they bring will, will really accelerate into these later quarters. I think it was just a, a, was a little bit early um, in knowing that, you know, they did have a wide footprint and they weren't, you know, hugely exposed to any of the kind of the big, whether it be Illinois or Pennsylvania or uh, Florida, it, they had pretty small, they were in those mm. states, but they were small in those states. They totally. didn't really get that 2020, 2021 growth story that, you know, the, the GTIs and Crescos and Cura Leafs did. Uh, yes. But like you said, I think now is the time to like realize what, you know, kind of inflection point they're reaching, especially with, you know, Columbia Care, their, their exposure to or Ascend or Air, that that turn on that, you know, and like you said, with their current valuations, that turn ons in New Jersey, the uh, this flip to, you know, even the the allowance of flour in, in New York, the mm-hmm. the switch of Virginia to, to flour and the growth of the market there, like those things will start adding up. So, you know, you can't wait for those companies to ever to grow, but it, it does, you know, it is important to realize that a lot of these integrations will be choppy from a margin perspective. And yes, um, I think that's why, you know, like we said at the start, and that's something, you know, I continue to um, add Columbia Care from time to time, um, just, you know, continue to add, you know, dollar cost average in and, and realize you're not going to nail it perfectly. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do think, like you said, they have that access to capital. They do have the the footprint um, to at least be, you know, on the level of some of the bigger names, but at, at a very discounted price. So I think, yeah, Columbia Care great yes. at these prices, Air great at these prices. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing too is like with Columbia Care, like I haven't, I wish I knew them better. Like I haven't done enough work to like be like super bullish on push the chips in today, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep working on that. Right. Um, but I think, I, I think Nick, to your point, like, you know, like they weren't deep enough to kind of drive some of the results and they're going to need more capital, right? Their, their footprint is so big. They need a lot of that capital. And you make a great point on M&A, like choppiness in the quarter, right? And another thing that happens is as you close M&A deals, you have private investors who want to liquidate, right? Who are part of Geely for now Medicine Man or whatever, who've been tied up for years, who might want to get some liquidity, right? And that can pressure the stock in the short term. We saw that with Cresco. Um, and it can be a really good opportunity. It can, it can create this disconnect where it goes down more than other names, right? And that's interesting to me to, to kind of get your feet wet. Um, but it just depends. Like there's no, uh, like all of these companies, I think kind of coming to the end here, all of these companies going into a soft Q3, going into tax law selling season, going into safe not passing through the NDAA probably in a couple of weeks here, um, this could get be a rough ride over the next couple of weeks. So don't spend all your money today, you know, if you have it. Uh, but I think this will be a phenomenal buying opportunity, of course, with risks, of course, with downside potential as there always is. Uh, but I think we're just setting up a beautiful, beautiful opportunity for people, um, who may be able to hit multi-baggers, uh, you know, if they're investing at the right time and the right things. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a perfect instance of, you know, short-term, near-term perspective being, you know, having some, uh, pessimistic, uh, attitude towards it is, is certainly realistic with, you know, a number of the things we've outlined today. Um, but yeah, if you just look out uh, a year, two years, three years, um, the story that we've been telling from the beginning uh, remains strong. And, you know, as long as I have that conviction on, you know, I'm, you know, I've learned over the years that that patience is key. And this is, you know, it, it, we're still in the second or third inning. We're just having a really rough inning, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, then, but then the story continues um, and it's hard to look beyond, 
that perspective when all you do is see see bread in the portfolio day after mm-hmm. day. And, you know, I think a lot of what we discussed today is really how you manage, you know, whether it's tax loss selling, whether it's moving into a, a different name, whether it's, you know, consolidating a, a broad portfolio into a, you know, a number of just strong names that you really like and, and can get, get behind. I think all of those moves um, even though it's not going to just appear as, you know, an instant profit on, on your screen and in your bank account, those are the moves you need, need to take during these, these troubling times um, to outperform in, in the long run. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't get time to touch on it today, but I guess just in terms of strategy, the other thing I would tell people to think about is have a percentage of your cannabis portfolio that is a hedge against slow uplisting. Like, you know, I always go back to this, like, IIPR's whole business model is built on access to NASDAQ capital when other people don't have it, right? So um, IIPR is too expensive for me, but I have New Lake and that's my REIT, right? I, so there, you know, we'll touch on it on another episode, but there are big board listed companies like AFC Gamma, like Agrify that are really using their NASDAQ balance sheets to fund the industry. And the longer uplisting takes, the better it is for those companies. So there are ways to win, um, even if uplisting takes longer than we would like it to. So it's not all just about plant touching companies, uh, you know, tech companies as well, right? That can succeed um, in spite or because of slow uplisting. Yeah, no, we. I think we could do a whole episode on that, but no, it's a great point. Yeah, definitely all of these, you know, especially that's definitely something I learned. I'm glad I had new like exposure, but, you know, mm-hmm. looking back at the past year, it's all of these REITs have vastly outperform the market and you, and you get a nice dividend with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's definitely a place in having a, a balanced portfolio, you know, I certainly wouldn't recommend going to buy out any of the, the LPs, but yeah, like you said, yeah, the, right. the, the ancillary plays and uh, the tech plays, and there's definitely options out there where you can get exposure more broadly um, to a portion of the market that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and then, you know, like you said, really just take advantage of, of having that big board listing. Absolutely. All right, Nick, uh, at the end here, anything you'd like to leave people with? Um, just, you know, stay positive. Uh, uh, I can't, you know, haven't been in this industry for so long that uh, been through all of the, the ups and downs over the years and uh, just maintaining that that long term perspective. And, uh, you know, as long as you can get comfortable with that, the fundamental thesis that that you're driving and uh, you know, never get stuck in that thesis, always, mm-hmm. you know, observe it quarter over quarter, whether it's yes. holding true, like that's, you know, uh, I'm, will be the first one to admit, like when I make mistakes or when I, you know, overlook certain items, uh, but just regularly, you know, return to the reason why you got into a certain name at the beginning. Um, and even if it's, you know, down 30% in the quarter, which is, you know, fairly frequent here, um, don't just automatically assume, hey, I made a mistake. Hey, you know, this clearly didn't work out. Um, a lot of times you just have to have that long term view and know that the the fundamentals behind it, the reason why you got into it are still true today. Um, and just, you know, kind of working around the margins to perfect the strategy um, mm-hmm. is, a, is, is key um, to, to really realizing those gains in the long term. I love it, Nick. Realizing long term gains. Uh, sticking to the strategy, focusing on what you missed, and above all, never posting negative news from JP Morgan on your Twitter. Okay, that's what we've learned today. Yeah, I'll remember that forever. Only you know, only positive, bullish things, one hundred percent of the time. 
<laughs> Absolutely not. Always bring them the truth, whether they like it or not. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to having you in a couple weeks for the Q3, Q3 review. Thank you, everybody, for listening. CINpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.